0: for you this night, and Lord, we just ask that you would do your work in each of our hearts and lives, that you would strengthen us and encourage us in our service for you. We ask that you would use this time as we study your word to bring us closer to thee. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21 and... Uh, We are just following the events here. And uh, I'm not quite sure if I should start with the summary. That's the note at the end. uh, That way it won't interfere with our uh, covering the facts of the story. Um, And uh, I did not take um, the... um, Uh, time to list every parable and every question that was asked Jesus during these days, but let's just uh, touch on the time frame at this point. As uh, tradition, uh, there are basically two uh, thoughts for the uh, crucifixion of Jesus, one, uh, the predominant one, most people talk about Friday, Good Friday. And, of course, it doesn't take lo- very long to read your Bible, and you, and you have a very quick question that comes to mind. How do you get three days and three nights between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning? Uh, that would be pretty cool if you were getting a paycheck, uh, especially if they were paying by the hour if you could get three days' work in Uh, in that time period and uh, yet it's interesting the most prevalent next to that is Wednesday so you have Wednesday and uh, Friday first which is very difficult then you have Wednesday now again if we take the three days and three nights you've got Wednesday, let's say we don't count Wednesday during the day at all, even though it was before sunset Jesus went into the tomb. You have Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, which makes the resurrection need to happen before sunset on Saturday. And that gets a little scary. And the other thing that gets tight is what we're going to cover tonight, Jesus' teaching He comes in, the triumphal entry, enters Jerusalem, looks around in the temple, goes out. He comes back in on Monday morning and one of the most debated uh, little subjects is the cursing of the fig tree. Uh, Mark makes it very clear that it's the second morning as they come in that the disciples really notice uh, the fig tree is withered and talk about that. And so we have two days teaching in the temple and then another day preparing the meal. All of that would have to be compressed into two days in order to have the crucifixion on Wednesday. And I look in the books and try to find, and I found a few people that talk about, well, maybe it happened on Thursday, uh, which has been my surmise all along uh, because it just... Fits. And we'll be going through some of the uh, the dates, but what we have is two definite days teaching in the temple, Monday and Tuesday. And we're going to try to cover those, uh, what happened on those two days. And the way the disciples covered, it's, it's very interesting. In Luke chapter 20 and verse 1, it just says, and on one of those days... I mean, that's how Luke characterizes the entire time frame. And it came to pass that on one of those days as he taught in the temple and preached the gospel. Um, That's Luke's categorization of the whole Passover week. John spends a few verses from... John chapter 12 and verse 46 through verse 50 through the end of the chapter. I mean, John 12, 37 through 50. And he just summarizes most of it dealing with the unbelief of the Pharisees and how that Jesus did all these miracles and yet they refused to believe him. And so, let's just, uh, having said all of that, uh, we... Come down to Mark chapter 14, and it says, after two days. And this is the reason now, uh, Stephen, I guess you're going to have to take him to the back there. Um, People want to put in a silent Wednesday and all of that, but I just want to offer one thing. If this had been said Tuesday afternoon, as Jesus is finishing the discourse The Olivet Discourse, as it is called, and we'll be touching on that. We have two sunsets before the Passover meal, which would be on the second day without stretching too far. And uh, so, uh, what we're going to try to do is just take the natural course of events, and we're going to follow primarily at this point Matthew's narrative. And so, let's Get back to Matthew chapter 21 if you're there. And uh, starting in verse 18, and we're just going to follow through here as much as we can. So we have the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus, Sunday afternoon, has ridden the donkey into the city of Jerusalem And it says, And when the chief priest, verse 15, saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore, displeased, and said unto him, they were talking to Jesus, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? Thou hast perfected praise. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. So, Bethany being just a little way outside the city of Jerusalem, Jesus went out of, away from the temple itself, and now we pick up our narrative, verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. How many of you like breakfast? Breakfast. Anybody here just don't do breakfast? I mean, it's just maybe a cup of coffee on the way. Uh, But most of us like breakfast. Breakfast is a great meal. If you're going to skip a meal, don't skip that one, right? And uh, so as Jesus is walking in, it, it just says he was hungry in the morning and he saw a fig tree in the way. He came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only. And he and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee back, henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only see... Ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast in the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. And so Jesus is using the fig tree as an example of faith. If we read Mark's account It says the disciples noticed it as they came in Tuesday morning. And I'll just uh, uh, again remind you, what we have is four men giving four accounts. And I I believe that both of them are simply true. Some of the disciples, Matthew, paying attention. The fig tree withers away. Jesus takes 30-second sermon here and explains about faith. On the way back in in the morning, some of the other disciples who weren't paying attention uh, on the way in said, hey, that fig tree yesterday, it's gone. It's all withered and dried up. And Jesus just simply says the same words again in the morning, reminding the disciples about the faith. Now, uh, somebody says, "Oh, that's an oversimplification. Uh, How many parents do we have here? Uh, how many times do you repeat the same things over and over again to your children? Uh, How many times did Jesus repeat things over and over again to his disciples? Uh, And so I I try to take as simplistic a view of this as possible, and that Jesus would repeat that statement uh, the next morning to the disciples, I don't think would shock anybody, amen? And it would just again it 's a way, as we put the fingers of the story together, they just kind of fit that way. The same thing happens with the cleansing of the temple uh, in Matthew, it says he went in, he, he began to drive those people out, and we read Mark, he goes in in the morning and begins to drive them out. Well, guess what? What were the money changers there to do? Make a profit. Do you think just because Jesus run them out of the temple once that they were staying out? This was Passover week. This was the second, or actually probably the first largest uh, uh, prophet time of the year, and uh, the the second uh, uh, only being the, the Day of Atonement in the New Year, which actually started today. And so, uh what we have here is the disciples coming in with Jesus. We have four different stories. The fact that there are these little points of disagreement tells us one thing, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't um, just a council of men who gathered around 200 A.D. and decided to write the gospel story and call it Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You say, where in the world did that one get into the conversation? Well, if you read some of the liberal commentaries that are out there, that's actually how they explain the Bible. And yet these little differences of opinion that we see in here actually give us proof that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually did write these accounts and as four different viewpoints. Mark, we believe, uh, would have given much of Peter's uh, viewpoint. Luke was a scholar who talked to everybody and tried to collate things, put it together. And of course, Matthew and John were eyewitnesses of all these things that happened all writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, yet not robbed of their individual personalities and writing styles, and as we might say, I've used the word probably too much, viewpoints, but just their different points of perspective, being in uh, different proximities to Jesus in different places in the crowd and in different things that were going on. And so now we come here, and but let's not forget this before we move on. Forgive me, it's, it's been a trying week this week, but um, before we move on, want to emphasize just a few moments. The whole thing here is about faith. Now, what mountain was Jesus talking about? He's talking about the Mount of Olives. It figures strongly into prophecy. For that mountain to be picked up and cast into the sea would mean it has to come back Uh, because it's got to be there when Jesus touches the Mount of Olives and fulfills Zechariah's prophecy, which hasn't been fulfilled yet. Now, before you try to write carte blanche, I believe in a new Cadillac, Lord. I mean, that's the way some people interpret this passage. That's not what Jesus was saying. When we believe, what are we supposed to believe? Are we supposed to believe in what I want? Or are we supposed to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he wants? Amen? Do you see how simple that is? In fact, when we get to John chapter 16, after the Passover dinner, Jesus is going to give the disciples this instruction. He's going to say, When you pray to the Father, pray in my name. And I hope you don't get tired of hearing this illustration. It's the best I got. Uh, and, And I'm working on better ones, but when someone writes you a check, what they do is they authorize you to go to the bank and demand money in the name of the person who has written you the check. Isn't that how it works? And and most of the time when you go to the bank, you don't have to say, I demand that you cash this check. I mean, sometimes you get a belligerent teller that won't do their job, but most of the time you just say, I'd like to cash this check. And they'll say, well, against which account? Well, I want to cash it against the account it's drawn on, not on mine, right? And so you sign the check, you give it to the teller, and they look it up. And if there's money in the account, they give you the amount that is on the check. Now, if you decide that the person who wrote you the check didn't give you enough money and decide to try to add a few zeros, what happens? you get a free trip to Rikers Island because that is breaking the law. They put on the check the amount of money you're allowed to ask in their name. What's the application? Jesus has written down the things that we can ask. He has given us instruction in the Bible what we can ask in His name. God loves to work miracles. Amen? But those miracles are not in response to what you want. Because you're not God. Those miracles are in response to what He wants. Because it's His name we're asking in. Amen? Amen? Hello? we still together. But there is nothing that God will withhold from His servants when we ask to be obedient to His will. Do you get that? There is no limits on what God will give you to fulfill his will in your life. If that's hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a building, he will do it and has done it. You're sitting in it. Amen? If it's healing, he will do it. If it's going home to heaven, he'll do that too. But he will answer And God is showing the disciples that the power of God in answer to prayer is absolutely limitless. And yet, if the disciples could have prayed, what would their prayer be? Lord, don't let Jesus go through all this stuff. Don't you think the disciples would have prayed that? But God wasn't going to let them pray that prayer, was he? And even if they did, he wasn't going to answer it because Jesus had to endure the suffering of the cross to fulfill the scriptures. Yet if they could have touched the simple faith of Abraham, who when faced with God saying, take your son Isaac and sacrifice him on the altar, Abraham believed that he would receive his son back from the dead. And how many times had Jesus already told them? They're going to crucify me, but I'm coming back. And yet, even on Resurrection Sunday, after Jesus physically appeared to them, they were still having problems believing it now, weren't they? And so, let's understand. Jesus is using every situation as it comes up to get the disciples prepared for the greatest miracles that God is going to do this very week. And so we move on and we come to verse 23. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority dost thou these things? And who gave thee this authority i love this here's the chief priest now what was their job they were in charge of the temple they controlled the temple the priest had the say had the final authority they were the ones that directed what did and didn't happen in the temple mark tells us that jesus had Not suffered any man to carry any vessel through the temple complex. Now, that was going to disrupt some things. But see, Jesus is saying, listen, the temple is not just a shortcut. It's not an easy way to get from one place in Jerusalem to another place. It's supposed to be about the worship of God. That's why he didn't allow people to carry vessels through it. And so they finally figured it's time for us to put this man on the spot. You have to remember Jesus is teaching the people in the temple. Probably the court of the Gentiles we would think. There would be uh, uh, many, many people there gathered. uh, And Jesus is teaching and here come the chief priest kind of up behind him and cut him off and ask him what right he had to do what he was doing. Now, who was in charge of the temple again? The chief priests and Pharisees, the people asking the question. What were they saying in asking Jesus this question? see, they were a little smarter than we give them credit for sometimes. In asking Jesus the question of who gave the, this authority to do these things, they were telling all the people that were listening to Jesus' teaching, we did not give this man the right to do and say these things. Isn't that exactly correct? I mean, they were putting him on the spot, so they thought now how did Jesus answer them you see what they wanted Jesus to do was to say I'm the Messiah, I have the right to do this then they would have simply accused him of blasphemy and had a trial and taken. in fact isn't that exactly how it played out just a few days later But what did Jesus do? He says, okay, you're asking me a question. Let me ask you a question. He said, tell me about John's baptism. Now, what was Jesus doing? He was telling them that the same person that authorized John to baptize was the same one that authorized him to come in and clean out the temple and teach these things. But Jesus asked it in a very simple, yet incredibly profound way. He said, was John's baptism of men or of God? Now, how many of you know the answer? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. John chapter 1. Jesus knew the answer to the question he was asking. He also knew what the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests believed. Because they refused to be baptized by John. Yet I love the way they do this here. Let's look uh, let's just read it. It's so simple in the Bible. In verse 24, Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if ye tell me, I in likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things the baptism of John. Whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves. Now, do you get what's going on here? Here they come, Jesus is teaching. We have the children crying Hosanna to the son of David as they did the day before. We have the chief priests, the Pharisees, coming out and getting around Jesus and stopping him in his teaching, putting him on the spot, saying, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the right? And he says, I'm going to ask you a question if you answer my question," Then I'll answer yours. The baptism of John. Whence was it? Heaven or men? They go, just a minute, Jesus. Time out. Huddle. And they talk among themselves. And they say, if we say that John's baptism is from heaven, what is he going to say to us? Why weren't you baptized by John's baptism then? You don't believe that. He's going to turn it around on us. But if we say of men, all these ignorant, unlearned, hillbilly people out here, they're going to stone us because they believe it was from God. We're done if we do and we're done if we don't. How did he do this to us? And... They say, we we can't answer that question. Jesus said, okay, if you don't answer mine, I'm not answering yours. But what he was really saying was, the same person that authorized John authorized me. And all these people out here believe that John was authorized by God. And they are right. How many times... Is Jesus going to affirm that fact during the teachings of the week? Over and over and over again. He is going to lift himself up and show his authority and his position. So then, in verse 28, Jesus now turns the table on them and he says, But what think ye? A certain man had two sons... And he came to the first and said son go work today in my vineyard and he answered and said i will not but afterward he repented and went and he came to the second and said likewise and he answered and said i go sir and went not whither of them twain did the will of his father they said unto say unto him the first Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not, but the publicans and harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward, that ye might believe him. How could Jesus be any more plain in what he said than right there? He said, the lowest segments of our society are going to get to heaven before you do. Because they were willing to believe John's baptism. You know, Jesus didn't let this thing go. He kept twisting the knife, as we might say. I mean, he kept bringing home this point. You refuse to believe John's baptism, but I'm telling you, The publicans and the harlots that did, they're on their way to heaven. They're on their way into the kingdom of God, but you're not there yet. And then he's going to give them another parable, one of my favorite parables in the Bible. He's going to say a man had a vineyard. And he let that vineyard out to husbandmen. He hired workers, farmers, to come in and take care of the vineyard. And it came time for... the the receipts of that vineyard and he sent his servants and it says that those husbandmen refused to render the fruit of the harvest they beat one they killed some finally the owner of the vineyard sends his own son boy how many of us know where this story is going I mean The disciples didn't. The Pharisees had an idea it was going somewhere and they're going to figure it out in a few minutes. But it is so plain to you and I today, is it not? It says, and the husbandman plotted and planned, said, this is the heir. This is the man that inherits the vineyard. Let's kill him. And when there's no one to inherit the vineyard, it will automatically become ours because we are the caretakers of it. I heard a preacher once say, where in the world did that reasoning come from? Well, it came from several things. When Saul was killed, who was put in charge of all Saul's property? His servant, Ziba. In fact, that's who David addressed when he was trying to Set things right in the house of Saul. So there was a precedent for the servants, the people that actually worked the land. But here was the second part of their, uh, of Jesus' teaching here that was going to drive these chief priests and scribes mad. You see, their understanding was that the owner of the vineyard did not care about the vineyard. And that's exactly the way the scribes and the Pharisees treated God the Father. Everything is about us. It's not about the owner of the vineyard. He owns the vineyard just like the God of Israel. Everything is about God. I mean, we talk about God. We we teach His Word. We do everything according to His Word. But He really doesn't care. It's all about us. Isn't that what false religion is today? It's exactly the same thing, isn't it? They often tell the funny story of arguing about different things, and there's a picture on the wall of either the founder or the Lord Jesus. And somebody said, "What would he think about this?" And said, so "You leave him out of that." Said, so "Looks like you already have." And the simple truth is Jesus was illustrating the fact that these Pharisees, these chief priests, did not think that God even cared about his work. That it really already belonged to them. And then Jesus finishes the parable by saying that the owner is going to come back and he's going to destroy those wicked men that he had let the Vineyard out to, and then he quotes the Old Testament, verse forty-two. Jesus saith unto them, "Did ye never read the script in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is in this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you." and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall upon this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now, how many of you remember what Jesus said in John, Matthew chapter 16? He said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the Catholics have gone through and tried to say that Peter was the rock. If that were true, why would Jesus have said these words about himself in this parable? Well, it's simple. If Peter wasn't the rock, Jesus is. And Jesus said, whoever's going to stumble at this rock, if you're going to stumble at what I say, if you're going to refuse to believe it, you're going to be broken. But when I come in judgment, I'm going to fall upon you and destroy you utterly. And they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them and become. then we have the, the, the plotting and the planning. Jesus gives now the story uh, of the wedding feast, and uh I want to be careful with our time here, but the, the idea of the wedding feast here was verse five he prepared the king prepares the feast, they which are bidden verse five make light of it, and went their ways one to his farm, another to his merchandise, and the remnant took his servants and treated them spitefully and slew them. The king judges them. He sends his servants out to compel them to come in. These were people that weren't invited to the wedding. These were people that normally wouldn't be invited to the wedding. You know what Jesus was trying to tell him? says, you have rejected, have made light of the offer of God. You're going to come under God's judgment. And the unwilling people, the people that living in the highways and the byways, the publicans, the sinners, they're the ones that are going to fulfill the guest at the marriage supper. And yet one of those guests come in not having a wedding garment on and there's been an awful lot made of that but what this simply is telling us is that the king was providing proper clothing for those that didn't have it would that not Does that not also speak of our Lord as he invites us in and he provides for us that which we cannot have so that we will feel proper and right and deserve to come into the palace of the king? And this one fellow says, Hey, if you invited me, I'll come just the way I am. And what happens to him? He gets bound and cast out where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You don't come to God His way. You come at His request. The Bible says, For whosoever will, amen. But when you come, you're going to come His way, not your way. He was telling them that the publicans and the harlots, they're no longer publicans and harlots. They've stopped their sin so that they would be fitting to come in and serve God. And while Jesus is teaching, he ends at verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees took counsel. And so now we've got these guys coming in, and they've actually called in the Herodians. Now, would you have any understanding as why people would call themselves Herodians? This was a group of Jews that semi practiced all of the things in the Old Testament, but they were on Herod's side. They were part of his team. Herod was supposedly the descendants of the Maccabees. Even in this, it was all based on a technicality. Herod wasn't even a Jew. And this group of people were on Herod's side. They normally were one of the most despised groups of people in Jerusalem. But because the chief priest and the scribes couldn't figure out what to do, they said, let's go get those dirty Herodians. They're really smart. They know how to work things out. And they try to entrap Jesus. And of course, the first question is tribute. Now remember where Jesus was teaching. In the temple, Passover week, Jerusalem would swell. Uh, I've been given found different numbers, but normally a town of about six hundred thousand to somewhere over one and a half million people, almost three times its normal size. From all over the world, the Jews would come from Passover. Now, do you think they were all happy about the Roman taxes that they had to pay as they traveled the highways back to Jerusalem? Were they happy at seeing Roman soldiers all through Jerusalem as they came to worship at the feast? And so these people were playing upon their sediments, their nationalistic ideas of the Jews being God's chosen people and being free and all of this stuff and the reality of the taxation of Rome was oppressive. If you think the IRS is bad, just praise God you weren't living in Jerusalem in Jesus' days. I mean, it was oppressive. It it really was almost impossible for a normal family to pay their taxes give God an offering, and feed their children at the same time. I mean, it was nearly impossible. You had, to, you had to go without. As a parent, sometimes do without food so that your children could eat. That's how tight things were. And so they were trying to stir up those anti-Roman settlement settlements. Do you pay tribute to Caesar or not? said, we're going to get them because if Jesus said, don't pay tribute to Caesar, the red lights and the bells would go off and the, the same people that were trying to stir up these sediments would have sent, sent messengers to Pilate saying, Jesus is telling the people not to pay taxes to Rome. You've got to get rid of this guy. And if Jesus said to pay taxes to Rome... See, he's a sellout to the emperor. He really doesn't believe in the God of the Bible. Are you following me with the reasoning here? I mean, talk about a perfectly laid plot. This was a whole lot better than who gave you authority to teach these things. I mean, we're taking this whole thing to another level, are we not? And yet, what did Jesus do? He said, uh, bring me a piece of the tribute money. I wonder where they got that. I bet one of them snuck out to the money changers who were now sitting outside the gates of the temple and said, give me a coin, quick. And they ran back in and handed it to Jesus. And he said, whose picture's on the coin? Who printed this coin? Whose signature is there? I mean, whose imperture Inscription is the Bible word. He said, well, Caesar's. He said, well, then how about rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? but unto God the things that are God's. Boy, won't that still solve a lot of problems today. Amen? Then they got desperate. They asked him the question about the seven brothers. Has anybody ever figured that thing out? I imagine the Pharisees had something to say about each one of the seven brothers but Jesus nailed them uh, actually it was the Sadducees I'm sorry Jesus nailed them right between the eyes and said you don't understand the people that are accounted worthy to be in the kingdom of heaven they're neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage you know why because the Bible tells us we are espoused to one, Jesus. People have often asked the question, what, what are we going to do when we get to heaven and we see our husband or our wife or our father or our mother? And the simple truth of the matter is we will be closer in, to one another in heaven than we can possibly be to anyone here on earth. Because we will be one with Jesus Christ and one with each other. And our human relationships will just be a mere shadow because we will know him as we are known. Tell you what, heaven's going to be a wonderful place. The former things are going to be passed away. We also have the story of the widow's mite, whereas Jesus is taking a break from teaching. He's sitting there in the temple and watching, and they tell us that in the temple they they built a stone vault and they made these uh, trumpets basically funnels out of gold that would receive the funds through the stone wall so that once the money went in, nobody but the priest could get it out. Now, I don't know who invented this because the temple was completely destroyed in 70 AD. We have not even so much as a footprint of the temple, but that's what they say. And could you imagine the sound if you had a long gold funnel and you begin dropping golden coins, it would sound like a musical instrument, would it not? And the stone, the temple was made out of stone. How many of you have been in a big government building and you hear the echo? Could you imagine what that would have sounded like? And let me tell you, there were people that knew how to give an offering. I mean, they brought of their abundance. And I mean, they poured it in and... Everything that was going on in that area was immediately drowned out by the cacophony of noise of those coins banging and clanging against each other and against this funnel as echoing off the stone walls. And Why do you think Jesus talked about those that did their deeds to be seen of men? Boy, I'll tell you what, you could make a show here. And then the poor widow comes up with two mites that weren't even enough money to buy a day's bread. And when she dropped those mites into that same funnel, that same horn, it sounded cheap. Just like hitting a beautiful musical instrument like a a xylophone with the wrong kind of hammer. I mean, you hit it with the right kind and you hear the the notes ring out. You hit it with the wrong kind of hammer and all you get is stink. Nothing in tune, nothing musical. I almost have to believe that some of the people around, when they heard that, they went, <coughs> well, at least she's trying to do something. What did Jesus say about her? said, she gave more than all of them did. Because she gave it all. You know what? There was a lot going on in the temple that week. What is called the Olivet Discourse at the end of Tuesday as they came out. The disciples were showing Jesus the stones in the buildings of the temple. I've often wondered, where in the world did this come from? But just giving it a little simple thought, how many times do you go walking, we who live here in New York City, how many times do you go walking down the street and all of a sudden, wow, you know, this is just a cool place to live look at these beautiful buildings and all the reflections and they don't melt cars like the one in London. You've heard about that, the building in London that melts cars. That's hilarious. Uh, Fortunately, we haven't built one like that yet in New York City. But the simple truth of the matter is the disciples were just taken in awe of the temple and they thought Jesus ought to be too. But Jesus could see through the years. This is about 30 AD, 40 years. The armies of Rome would compass the city of Jerusalem and literally rake it even with the ground. He told them the prophecies. We call it the Olivet Discourse, because as Jesus was leaving the city of Jerusalem Tuesday with the disciples, he would have sat down on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple and the city of Jerusalem, and he would have told them of these things. They got confused. They said, Lord, when's going to be this, when are these things going to happen and the end of the world? You know, because if the temple is destroyed, it's got to be the end of the world, right? Wrong. It wasn't the end of the world. We're still waiting on it. It could be roughly a thousand and seven years from tonight if Jesus were to come today, if we understand the prophecies correctly. So when you see the signs put up there saying, the end of the world, May 21st, wasn't it? Well, I knew one thing for sure. The world wasn't on May 21st. There's a lot of prophecy has to be fulfilled yet. And by the way, Harold Camping has never been right about anything. So we'll just strike that one up as another wrong prediction. And so let's go down to Matthew chapter 25... very quickly here and we'll try to finish We've... verse 31 it says when the man of when the son of man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them one for another as a sheep divideth his, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, "Lord, when saw we thee, when saw we thee, and hungered and fed thee or thirsty, and gave thee drink, when saw we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee, or when saw we thee sick or in prison, and came unto thee, And the king shall answer and say unto them, verily, I say unto you." Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. It's interesting. He's then going to address those on his left and say, I was hungered and you didn't feed me. And they're going to answer the same words. When when did we see the end? He's going to say, Inasmuch as ye did it not unto the least of these, my brethren, ye did it not unto me. And some people think that these verses are talking about when a homeless man's sitting on the corner, that we give him money for a cup of coffee, that's fulfilling these verses. No, Jesus is saying, unto the least of my brethren. You know what this is talking about? It's talking about taking care of the missionaries that go through our city. It's talking about helping other people serve Christ. I'll tell you, there's a lot of churches when I was going out asking for help for our church, they didn't know me from Adam. They said, we're going to help you with that church in New York City. That's what Jesus is talking about. You know what? We have a responsibility to help people serve God. Brother uh, Rehobov, our missionary in In Russia, you need to keep him in prayer. I haven't gotten any updates, but his wife's had some complications in her pregnancy. They're flying through New York. They get stuck here overnight. Guess where they're staying? Right here. Because that's what we want to have happen. Amen? That's what Jesus is talking about. Keep your eyes open to serve me. And you help my servants. Who are you really helping? You want to be a blessing to Jesus? Help His servants. Give to missions. Be a blessing to those that are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we don't be a blessing to other people. But our primary focus is in helping others serve that's what our church is about amen and so Jesus is ending his teaching with these words two days awful lot of teaching for two days we're trying to sum it up in 45 minutes but I think we covered it pretty thoroughly not in greatest detail. We could spend from now till Christmas and still not covered in perfect detail. But if we follow the events, we have them preparing for the feast of the Passover. That would have naturally fallen on the next day, Wednesday. Actually, would have been Wednesday evening after sunset. Two days, sunset Tuesday night to sunset Wednesday, it would be on the second day they would prepare for the they would prepare the next day for the feast on the second day, and the key to all of this here is this two days, as the John and I mean not John, as Matthew and Mark are relating, this is the day that Judas makes contact with the Pharisees and agrees to betray Jesus. That's what they were talking about. That's why, again, they bring the story, Mark and Matthew bring the story of the lady anointing Jesus, where if we follow the natural fall of things in John, that would have happened on Saturday night after Sabbath was over. They relate the story here, because that was the key that locked Judas' heart into becoming the betrayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's happening right now as Jesus is finishing his teaching. The next day, they'll eat the dinner. After the dinner, Jesus will be betrayed. Thursday morning, he will be crucified And then we move through the events of the resurrection. And so let's just have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the stories that are here. And Lord, I pray that I would not make this tedious, but Lord, we could just grab a glimpse of the incredible teaching that you did during these days and how continually confounding those that were seeking to entrap you, Lord, the fury and the madness that must have poured through their veins and yet calmly and simply telling us all things that are going to transpire, even those that we're still waiting on these nearly 2,000 years distant Lord, we ask that you administer your word to our hearts and that we would just simply lift up in reverence the Lord Jesus for who he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God incarnate, Emmanuel, the sacrifice for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. And we'll just keep our heads bowed, and if the piano will play.